Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, body positivity, and health at every size. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm a registered dietitian, nutritionist, and certified intuitive eating counselor specializing in weight-inclusive wellness. Join me as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 79. I am in a much better mood this week. I'm still bummed out, I'm still angry, I'm still upset, but I am now galvanized and ready for action. I'm talking, of course, about the election, which if you heard last week's episode, you heard me in a very sort of low point, and I thought it was important to release that episode rather than change my schedule around and record the intro a different day when I was in a better place because, you know, I wanted you to hear that I feel feelings too, and it's okay, you know? So that's like the big message of last week's intro, I think, is I wanted to say it's okay to feel your feelings and you can use your feelings as fuel. That's my new spin on it this week is feelings can really fuel change. So if you are feeling these things, don't let people in your life try to talk you out of it. It's okay. You know, you're sensitive and you're feeling what needs to be felt in order to move things forward. On the topic of this week's episode of the podcast, I have a wonderful guest, Elise Resch, who is the co-author of the book Intuitive Eating with Evelyn Triboli, who I spoke with a few weeks back. So this is sort of a part two, but also it stands alone, addressing intuitive eating and how intuitive eating can sometimes be mistakenly used to support diet culture. And Elise's take on the topics of, you know, the concepts of intuitive eating and how the book has evolved over time. She has some really great insights into how this movement has changed and how she has grown and changed over the years in her understanding of body positivity and health at every size and how those concepts have become integrated into her work. And I think it's really wonderful that she shares this and that Evelyn also shared some of that in her episode because it shows us that even people who are held up as some of the leaders in the anti-diet world still have their own growth and development that happens over time over the course of their career. And that has been true for me too. So it was it was nice, sort of a nice reminder that like, yeah, we all go through development in our careers. We're not just born being amazing, perfect anti-diet warriors. Like there's no such thing. <laughs> so we all have our journeys with these things. And it just was really nice to hear her share that. And just a couple of announcements before we get started. One is that I have a really exciting deal coming up soon for my intuitive eating online course and the Food Psych Premium membership, and it's only available to people who are on my email list. So be sure to join my email list if you haven't already so that you don't miss this great deal when it comes out. Head over to christyharrison.com slash email and you can join today. And then another exciting promotion that everyone can take advantage of no matter what is in the wake of this election... I've decided that anyone who buys my online programs and products can choose to have me donate 10% of the proceeds to one of two amazing charities. So the American Civil Liberties Union, which fights for equal rights for people of all races, genders, ethnicities, religious affiliations. So I'm supporting them, and I'm also supporting Planned Parenthood, which provides free and low-cost care to women who need care for their reproductive health. And so you can choose to have me donate to one of these charities with your purchase. You don't have to, but if you would like to support one of them, you can do that when you purchase by entering the offer code ACLU for the ACLU or PP2016 for Planned Parenthood. And that info is on my website as well. You can find it at christyharrison.com shop where you can see all the products and services that are eligible for this deal. You can support the podcast by leaving us a great rating and review, and you can do that by going to iTunes from your computer or to your podcasts app on your phone, type in food psych to the search bar, and then click on the result that comes up under podcasts, and you can leave a nice rating and review there under the ratings and reviews tab. 
And that's really important because it helps bring us up in the ratings and helps other people find these important body positive messages. And I've been so excited and heartened by the rise of food psych in the rankings lately. So we really are competing with a lot of the diet culture messages that are out there and really, you know, getting in people's faces and showing them that there is an alternative, that health at every size is a valid approach to health. And what I really want is for this podcast to be so visible and so out there that people can't deny health at every size anymore and that people get exposed to it when they're just searching for basic information about health and nutrition. Because I think if we could give people this information before they even go down the rabbit hole of diets, it would save so many people years and years of pain. So I really hope to get this message out there and you can help me do that by leaving a nice rating and review for the podcast. And I'm so grateful for all of you who've done that already. It means the world to me. All right, so now without any further ado, let's go talk to Elise Resch. I spoke with her via Skype from her home in Los Angeles, California. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up. That's so interesting. I grew up with a mother who was hyperthyroid. And so she ate whatever she wanted. She wasn't worried about her weight. So I had none of that mother pressure about food. But I had a father that was a compulsive overeater, although I don't think I actually recognized that until I was an adult. But he was also emotionally abusive. And so when I look back, I used food emotionally because I was afraid of him. But I knew nothing about diets. I knew nothing about the ability to change one's weight. I remember in high school, I didn't go to a school where people talked about weight or diets. It was a long time ago also. Mm -hmm. I went to high school back in the early 60s, late 50s, early 60s. But I remember thinking that if I saw someone who was living in a larger body, that that person must have what I called a glandular problem. I never thought it had anything to do with, with food. So it was a complete disconnect for me. Until I got to UCLA as a freshman, and I was <laughs> I remember standing in line waiting to make my lunch for the very first day of school. And I was I took this big Kaiser roll and I started putting a big amount of tuna on it. And the girl behind me went, Oh my God. And I thought maybe a you know a fly had gotten in there or something. I said, What? What's the problem? She said, That's so fattening. And it was like a foreign language. I had no idea about what she was talking about. It was I just had never heard any of this. So I had a healthy relationship with food other than some emotional eating, but I didn't have any restrictive thoughts about it until I met my first husband when I was a freshman in college. And he was very much into nutrition, interestingly. And I think his mother would have been diagnosed with orthorexia, my former mother-in-law, although we didn't know that you know terminology then. And he was horrified by the way I ate when I would order pie, when we would go out and he would order pineapple. And, and I, you know, was young and didn't really know my own mind so much. And I said, okay, fine, I'll never eat like that again. And I started doing some restrictive eating, but it was always based on nutrition at that point. It wasn't until probably my late 20s, when I was thinking about having a second child, and I decided I was going to lose a little bit of weight just before I got pregnant again. And that was really the beginning of an eating disorder for me because I was dieting and restricting and as a result started binging. And I, by the way, just as interesting for the audience, I never did get pregnant again. And I went to many doctors about, you know, what's wrong. They couldn't find anything wrong. And no doctor said to me, are you eating enough? Have you lost weight? And when I subsequently went to graduate school to become a nutritionist, I was an elementary school teacher in my first life. And I learned that even a pound of weight loss a week can cause infertility. So very interesting. And that starving, dieting, binging became my eating disorder. It was never bulimia. And I suspect at some point it could have been diagnosed as anorexia because I lost my period for a few months. But I finally healed from it as a result of changing my life dramatically, changing my career, changing my marriage, and going to therapy. I started therapy at 35. And soon after I was working in private practice, 
I was very aware of the fact that I did not want to work with quote unquote weight control. I had been trained at Children's Hospital in a facility working with developmentally disabled kids and I was really geared toward doing that kind of work. But then I got many referrals for quote weight loss from doctors and I didn't know what to do with it. And I was probably toward the end of healing my own eating problems, although I didn't go to therapy for eating. I went, I didn't, there were no nutrition therapists around who could deal with eating disorders. I think it just healed as a result of going to graduate school and starting this career and really taking a look at myself. I had a similar experience. The food component of my eating disorder really started to heal in graduate school. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's so interesting. When you learn the science of it, when you learn that when you're ovulating, you hold you know, water weight. And I always thought, oh my God, I've gained, because I was weighing myself all the time. I've gained, you know, pounds. What am I going to do? I didn't change my eating. Right. I have a very actually interesting story when I was during that early period of time when I was with my first husband, he was in a law firm and one of his partners was dating Gloria Steinem. Oh, wow. (laughs) And she was invited to come to a dinner. She was going to be in town. And I thought to myself, I can't go to this dinner because I'll be eating more calories than I was eating. You know, I had scheduled my eating every day to a certain amount of calories and a certain amount of exercise really fully into the eating disorder. This was well before graduate school. And I just remember thinking to myself, I can't miss seeing, you know, meeting Gloria Steinem. And so I went to the dinner party and I ate normally and I got up the next morning and got on the scale and it was exactly the same number as it had been the day before. And I was mystified. How could that be? I had had it all calculated calculated out. So it kept me from a lot of things. Yeah. Was that the first sort of crack in the dam of the eating disorder when you noticed your weight stayed exactly the same that next day? Well, it, it did cause me pause. You know, I was so perfectionistic about everything and calculating every calorie in and every calorie out and not believing that there couldn't, you know, there could be a possibility that it wouldn't change and seeing that it mystified me. And I think it was just probably a couple of years after that, that I started graduate school after I couldn't get pregnant again, and went to school. And then as the science started building up, and I started learning all about the body, and the psychology part being in therapy at the time, you know, it just all came together to, as I said, change my life and change my thinking and realize that this is my soul's purpose is doing this work. And I was led there by having my own issues with it. Oh, like so many of us in this work, you know. It's such a gift, really. It's a complete gift because I find that I can relate so well or my with my clients, and I'm very self-revealing with my clients. I feel it's important for them to know that I had an eating disorder and I haven't had a problem with food. I'm 71 now, and I haven't had a problem with food in probably 35 years. So over. And it's nice for them to know that you can heal from this fully and be completely liberated. And And what I was starting to say about the early part of my work was that I had to be thrown into this world of what was called weight control at the time. I think some people still call it that. And I wasn't prepared for it. I didn't know what to do with clients. And so I would put them on you know, meal plans and exchanges, and I would weigh them every day. And I mean, every time they came in and they would lose weight, then they would go away. And then they would call me a year later and say, I gained all the weight back. And I would feel so bad about it, but they never blamed me. They thought there was something wrong with them. And it was right around that time when I started reading some of the non-diet literature that started coming out probably. And oh gosh, the early 90s maybe, and was then really primed to shift my entire thinking into the the understanding that diets don't work, restriction doesn't work. It's all the psychology of it and the physiology and neurochemistry of it that, you know, keeps it from working. And so when things changed, say five years into 82, no, by then it was probably about getting closer to 10 years into my career that I found such peace and happiness in my work because I was no longer trying to help people lose weight. Mm, that's so beautiful. You know, so it's such a negative thing to kind of collude with people's sense of self that they're not good enough if they're not at a lower weight and to collude with them and give them the belief that if they would just do things right, they'll lose weight and then, you know, all will be fine. It's just, uh, I feel so sad I don't blame myself because I didn't know any better, but I feel so sad that I was part of that 35 years ago. Yeah. 
I think so many of us go through that even now, you know, knowing what we know or having the knowledge available out there, like your book and all this seminal work that's been done on non-diet nutrition and health at every size. You mm -hmm. know, those of us who come up in the field these days are still getting these old school, outdated messages about weight control and calorie counting and all of that stuff. Like I did my training five or seven years ago and that was still happening, you know, and I get letters from people all the time saying, thank God for your podcast because I'm in dietetic school right now and it's all about this traditional weight paradigm, you know, so it's nice to hear this alternative is out there. Oh, absolutely. It just boggles my mind that that's still happening. I run a supervision group once a month for health professionals, mostly nutritionists, dietitians, but there are some psychotherapists and I've had a pediatrician. I've had a number of different types of uh, health professionals in the group and I always open it to interns and students and I have a couple of them in there now and one of them who has, she has a master's in psychology, she has her master's in nutrition and she's doing her dietetic internship and one of the I don't know what they call it, but one of the parts of it is she is sitting in on a dietitian who is right here in California who is doing exactly that. And it, she's horrified because she's a 100% proponent of intuitive eating. And it's scary. It's really scary that it's still out there and that people are getting harmed by this. Yeah, that's become sort of a secondary aim of this podcast. Like the primary aim is to help people improve their relationships with food. But I have found this this audience among health professionals who want to learn this other side and learn about intuitive eating and health at every size. And that has become a real mission of mine is educating people that they don't have to buy into that traditional weight paradigm. And in fact, that it's unethical to do that at this point. It's absolutely unethical, but it's also very scary for some people who aren't very sure of themselves. And the only way that they can judge their own success in their work is to look at a scale and see that somebody's lost weight or count up calories and see that the person is probably not telling the truth, but is not is eating what they've told them. It's, it takes a lot of courage and it takes a lot of self-esteem as a nutrition therapist to say, wait a minute, I am going to move forward in this kind of, it's more amorphous. It's more about helping people see their their regular successes in terms of how tuned in they are to their bodies and how much satisfaction they're getting from their eating and how they feel. And so there isn't that kind of number game that I find some people just don't want to let go of. Professionals don't want to. So. Oh, totally. I think it's, it is really scary to first give that up because that's what we hear is the way to measure our progress. And if we're not mm -hmm. doing that, and it actually in some institutions, I've been told that like the electronic medical records people will have in institutions are like flashing on the screen. This person's BMI is such and such, you know, uh. talk to them about weight loss. It's like they can't escape it. And they're seen as not doing their job if they're not talking about weight loss. And I think that they have to put in a weight in order to go on. This is what yeah. I was told in my doctor's office. My doctor, whom I've been going to for probably 40 years, knows to not weigh his patients. And I've taught him many things along the way. But the nurse who's going through the statistics is then saying, okay, well, you know, what is your weight? And I mean, I I tell people just throw out any number. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I really empower people to say no to getting weight. There's really rarely a time when a doctor actually needs to know a weight, perhaps during pregnancy sometimes, but, you know, there's very few instances. So, and, and so many people won't go to the doctor because they're so afraid of getting on the scale and being chastised for their weight. Right. Yeah. What do you say to help people feel more empowered to say no to that? It's all a part of this ability to speak up and to be able to set boundaries and limits to what people say to you and to help them understand that, so many of the doctors are just thinking on this medical model, and they really haven't studied psychology. They haven't studied eating disorders. They haven't studied nutrition. And they really don't know the damage that they're doing. And I help them learn how to speak up to doctors. Sometimes I'll call a doctor and talk to the doctor, but often I'll have them take a couple of studies with them, some data, and show it to the doctor. So people are afraid, though. They're very afraid. And the more science that my clients understand about how the body works, how the mind works, how the, the neurochemistry, they start to shed some of that shame. 
that they have about their bodies and understand. I, I just had a client right before we had this. Well, I ate a bit of lunch. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Uh, but uh, before before my little lunch break, I had a client who had uh, was telling me I've seen her about four or five times now, and that she she had gone on oh I don't know the whole thirty or there's some I, I don't even there's so many different things out there, and how she had lost pounds in six weeks, and then she moved to Los Angeles, and since she's been in Los Angeles, she gained all pounds back in six months, and need to help her understand that her brain was just primed to send out the chemicals to help her get her weight back because she was put, her brain was in semi-starvation, you know, red alert, the organism is in danger. So let's go and slow the metabolism and put out chemicals that send you out to get more food and shut down the chemicals that tell you when you're full and, you know, raise the chemicals and tell you that you're hungry and to try to help her let go of blaming herself and understand that this was an inevitable result of having dieted. And she, of course, then goes on to, but I need to lose weight. I need to lose weight. And, and to help her shift from focusing on that weight and really doing wonderful things. Like last week, she said she went out and she bought herself a jacket that actually fits her now. And she loves it. And she felt good wearing it where she's always bought. She said she called them her goal clothes. She would buy and say, I'll wear this when I've lost, you know, such and such weight. So it's, yeah, it's tough. I mean, yeah, I think that's why the I love in you guys book. I mean, there's so much stuff we can talk about. But one is is that I want to talk about the book intuitive eating and the process of co writing that with Evelyn, and sort of how you stumbled upon including like the reject the diet mentality concept. Mm -hmm. I love how it's so early on in the book. And to me, when I teach intuitive eating to people, that's also one of the first things yes. I get into because I think it's such a groundwork for everything that comes next. Like if you're still stuck in the diet mentality, it can be very hard to move forward with the other principles of intuitive eating. But if you can, you know, do a lot of work to see how diet culture has conditioned us and to try to see outside of it and move beyond it, I think that can really help you move forward. Well, yes. I mean, as if there's another diet lurking in the future, you know, I'll try this intuitive eating thing for a while, but if it doesn't work, then I'll go on, whatever. All it does is set the person up for the perception of future deprivation. And just that is going to not allow them to really to embrace all of the principles of intuitive eating. So it's fundamental. I mean, if somebody comes in and tells me that particular thing, you know, I'll give this a try for a while. I help them understand the damage that's going to be done. A lot of people say, well, let me just lose weight first and then I'll come and do this. And, you know, wow, in that period of losing weight, you were feeling deprived and angry and frustrated. And it's, you know, not going to be very helpful <laughs> to lose the weight first. Right. And it's probably not going to stick because of all the, the science that tells us well, diets yeah. don't actually lead to sustainable weight loss. <laughs> It's so interesting. As the years have gone on, the, the first edition of Intuitive Eating was published in 1995. I mean, this is a very long time ago, 21 years ago. And the thinking in our profession and the thinking in our culture has changed so much toward this, as you said, health at every size and moving toward getting rid of weight stigmatization and helping people understand that holding on to this culturally thin ideal is just causing them so much, so much grief and just kind of this, what I like to call radical acceptance, which I think comes from Buddhism and also DBT training and just the idea that our bodies are going to want to be what they want to be as long as we treat ourselves well and listen to ourselves and, and move normally and your body's going to be what it wants to be. Try, stop trying to force it to be something that it can't, can't be. So it's, it's a tough conversation, especially I'm in you know, I'm in Southern California, in Los Angeles. My <laughs> got a lot of people in the movie industry and television, and and they're being forced to be weights that are below their normal weight. It's 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 tough. Mm. Yeah, the the image focus of that industry, I think, is really harmful. Yes, yes. I make sure that there are no magazines in my waiting room that talk about thinness, weight, any of that. I mean, I subscribe to the New Yorker and. And real and simple or simple and real or whatever it's called. Yeah. <laughs> Take people away from that because it's so toxic. 
That's such a good tip too, to get rid of those magazines that, you know, because there could be something of value buried deep within those magazines, but you're going to have to get through so much triggering stuff and so many things that reinforce the diet mentality. Then it's like, why not just get that out of your space for now? Well, and I'm so horrified because something just show up. I don't subscribe to them. Yesterday, there was a Shape magazine, or the worst is when I get Weight Watchers magazine. Ah, so like the, oh no. <laughs> it goes right in the trash. Except <laughs> mail, you know. So yes, I think it's a, it's really important to have a focus on that and and recognize that you're influencing people by what you have around in your office and the values that you hold. I do a lot of supervision for people who are training to become intuitive eating counselors. And one of the most important things I do in that supervision is helping them look at their own weight bias, their own old, you know, diet thinking, because we have to be so careful that we are fully healed in order to be able to help people because things can just pop out of someone's mouth if they're not fully healed. That's such a good point. Such a valuable piece of information, I think, for anyone who's recovering and listening to this, because I definitely, from my own journey, I went into school to become a dietitian before I was fully recovered. And actually, the process of going through school mm-hmm. plus discovering intuitive eating while I was there. And funnily enough that you mentioned radical acceptance, like that was sort of my way in was that I was doing a lot of the work in therapy on the underlying causes of my eating disorder and radical acceptance and Tara Brock's work were a huge piece of that, like learning self-compassion and acceptance for myself. My therapist was really big on that. So from that, I I was sort of primed, I guess, to appreciate the concept of intuition or be looking for it. Mm -hmm. So somewhere along the way, somebody mentioned intuitive eating. I don't even know where, but I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. And finally I was ready, you know, but I think still, you know, through the process of becoming a dietitian, there isn't really much training or supervision around dealing with your own issues as you go through it. So I kind of just had to figure it out on my own and with my therapist and muddle through. And luckily, I ended up training at an eating disorder treatment center, which was Mm. really instrumental in sort of cementing those values and those ways of speaking about food and nutrition with people. But I think if, you know, someone is just sort of coming at it from a different direction or going straight into private practice without having the eating disorders experience, I think that can be really challenging to to eradicate those diet, you know, that diet language or those triggering things from your speech and your actions, because we just aren't really given a lot of training in that. And, you know, there's the term nutrition therapist, which is what I call myself, and I don't know how many well, there, there is a group within the, what is it called, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics now, we used to be the American Dietetic Association, that's called Nutrition Therapists. It's under the auspices of another special interest group. But I was on the steering committee many, many years ago to create this group called Nutrition Therapists. And we set down guidelines that anyone, any dietitian who was going to use that term had to commit to having her own, his or her own psychotherapy and go to supervision just the way psychotherapists have to do. And so we tried to get that information out there that in order to do a counseling where you're patient focused and you're motivational interviewing now, of course, we didn't know that term then, you really have to look at your own issues and you have to get supervision, bring your cases to somebody. Right. I love that. There's now certification through IADEP. International Association of Eating Disorders Professionals, there's Certified Eating Disorder RD is a certification that is, it's fairly new. It's very rigorous to get that certification. And in fact, the academy is recognizing it as a certification along with all their other certifications. And that does require quite a bit of studying about eating disorders and and disordered eating. And I don't think it requires one's own therapy, but it would be important. It does require supervision though. Right. Yeah. I think requiring supervision would be so important for all specialties, but especially this. It's, And I think really all dietitians should be better trained on eating disorders than we are because the reality is research shows at least 75% of women have some form of disordered eating or yes. eating disorder. And I think anecdotally, it seems like it's probably even higher than that. Well, I think that part of it is that it's just fairly newly recognize when I was in graduate school in the late 70s and early 80s, in only one of my courses did they talk about someone with anorexia. It was one day, one picture, and that was it. Bulimia hadn't even come out in the 
language. So some people knew about anorexia. That was it. So when you think about that, that's, you know, what, 40 years ago. So it's only been in about the last maybe 30 to 35 years that we really are so aware of eating disorders. That's a good point. Yeah, fairly new. And especially things like orthorexia, which, you know, if you're attuned to it and you can sort of pick up that language in someone's speech, it's pretty easy to spot. But if you aren't aware of it, it can just look like, oh, this person's really interested in healthy eating. And that's, you know, that's something to be celebrated. You know, some people, I think some dietitians will actually celebrate that. Yes, and promote it. And somebody can get into very big trouble nutritionally and weight wise as a result of it, even though their goal is not to lose weight. Right. You can actually end up with malnutrition for being too focused on nutrition. (laughs) Well, and I actually think that in many cases of anorexia, it starts as orthorexia. I think that there are a lot of people who just are looking to control life. And so they start to control their food, thinking it's for their health. And as time goes on and they do start to lose weight and then they start to get compliments for being thinner, then it it shifts into anorexia. Yeah. Those compliments are so toxic. Yes. Yes, yes. Part of diet culture, I think, right, is that we reflexively compliment people on weight loss without knowing what went into that. You get it all the time. Oh, you look so great. Did you lose weight? Mm-hmm. You know, it's just an <laughs> association with someone looking good. And it's just, it's really kind of horrifying, actually, that that is the focus of so many people. It really is. They don't feel good about themselves unless they're being complimented on, you know, on their weight and how they look. Right. Yeah. So uh, going back to your personal story, I'm curious how you got from the midst of the disordered eating to really understanding why diets don't work and the anti-diet concept. And also, I think it's interesting that even though you had your own issues with food, you weren't wanting to impart that to other people via weight control and dieting. Like you had sort of some qualms about that. So yes, I did. Curious where that came from. Well, I think the qualms about it were that I knew, even then, I knew intuitively it just didn't work. It just, because every time I had gone on a diet, you know, I would lose weight and then I'd turn around and start binging and gain weight. So I think I kind of knew that that didn't work and I knew how miserable I was. I was so unhappy during my eating disorder. I know that it served me many ways. In fact, that's one of the things I have my clients look at is we're not doing it for no good reason. How is it serving you? How is it helping you cope? Because that's the only way you know how to cope. So I knew in my heart and soul that I didn't want to go through that. And then, as I said, the first number of years when people would come to me for whatever it was, whether it was a medical condition or even in the developmental disabled world, they were um, there were referrals for kids. They didn't want them to to eat too much and be more physically uncomfortable, whatever. And so I was so distressed by it. I didn't know what to do with it until I finally, I think the first book I read was Hirschman and Munter's book, Overcoming Overeating, which was the first time I saw the concept of let go of dieting, eat whatever you want to eat. And when I first read that, I was fascinated and and horrified at the same time. I thought, well, what do you mean? I'm a registered dietitian. How can I tell people to eat whatever they want to eat? That's, you know, against against what I know about nutrition. But it it really hit me. And then I think I read some of Janine Roth's books early on and about her experiences. And it started to really affect my thinking. And because I've always been so interested in psychology, as I said, I've been in therapy for much of my life, much of my adult life, I started reading more psychological books and and just trying to understand the psychology of eating. And at that point, I started writing a book and it was on my computer. I had a bunch of chapters written. I, and not written, but, you know, outlined and things I was thinking about in each of the chapters. And that was the point at which Evelyn actually was working in my office, prior office to the one I'm in now. And one day, I don't know if she happened to tell you the story when you talked to her, but she did. Yeah. She yeah, said she you did. guys ran into each other in the hall or something. Yeah. yeah. And I, I looked at her and she seemed a little unhappy. And I said, Evelyn, what's wrong? And she said, Oh, I'm trying to write this book with a psychologist who doesn't know how to write. And I don't know what to do. And it was just that, you know, moment that, that impulse of, oh my God, this is my opportunity. And I said, Evelyn, I'll write the book with you. And that's how that began. And I I had been wanting to have a book come out that was not just non-diet, but coming from a nutritionist and a registered dietitian, helping people understand how the body works and 
putting in also the psychology, but also the physiology and neurochemistry. And it just was a great moment. So I, she dropped the psychologist and I, <laughs> I entered in and we began, we began working on the book. It's so serendipitous. Oh, right. Yes. Syn- synchronicity. Yes. Love those well, moments. Yeah. I'm very grateful for it because I'm not extremely entrepreneurial. So I don't, I, you know, I knew I wanted to write it and I probably would have gotten the whole thing written and then not sure how to get it out there. So it was a great collaboration. Right. Yeah. It's, it seems like a good fit personality wise because you're you're needing someone to sort of help you reach out and publicize mm-hmm. and, and things like that. Right. So that's that's how it started. And at that point in my life, as I said, I had changed my life so dramatically. My career changed. I was finished with graduate school. I started I started my private practice. It's almost 35 years. Next year will be 35 years. And my personal life changed. And I was just, you know, so happy to be changing my thinking and be healing from my own eating disorder in those early years and carrying it on to full and total freedom and trust. That's really what intuitive eating is about. It's the the freedom from worry. It's the freedom from focusing on the external. It's about really trusting your body. It's it's a it's to to this day I find it awesome in the most <laughs> not teenage way of using awesome, but full of awe. When I was in the midst of writing the new book, which will be out in April, I took a couple of weeks off of work, one at the end of last year and one at the beginning of this year, because I, it's very hard for me to write while I've got clients all day long. So I took a week off and I found I was so fascinated to this day by having no schedule. I would get up in the morning and I would exercise, take a shower, eat, and then go, go upstairs to my desk and no schedule of clients coming at any particular time, no agenda. And I could just sit down and work. And then out of nowhere, I'd get the signal, oh, wow, I'm hungry. <laughs> and, you know, not be thinking about food, be thinking about my writing. And and then happen to look up at the clock and notice, oh, yeah, well, it's been about three hours since I ate breakfast, so I'm hungry. And, it was, and I found it so gratifying to experience every day, every few hours, that wonderful feeling of my body's telling me, that I'm hungry and to go and eat whatever I really wanted to eat. I would go downstairs. I wouldn't stay up at my desk. I'd go downstairs and make my lunch or get a snack, have a little coffee and some cookies or whatever it would be and enjoy it and then go back upstairs and, and work. And if people can really start to appreciate what an amazing feeling it is to trust the body, to know that you don't have to worry about anything, your body's going to tell you. I so agree with that. I feel like, you know, for me, it's been only like five years that's been the case, but I feel like sometimes it'll just hit me out of nowhere. Like, how cool is this? That it's been, my body's been regulating itself this whole time and Mm -hmm. it really does send those signals. And from what I know about nutrition and blood sugar and, you know, the way our body regulates its own glucose, I can sort of be like, oh, interesting. Yeah. My timeline is sort of matching up with what I know of the science and there's my body doing its thing. Like that's so miraculous. Absolutely. The other thing that's so exciting for me is that having done this work for so many years now, my clients are having children and they're growing up and they're raising their children with the ability to trust their bodies. And these kids are pure, you know, pure intuitive eaters. And the stories, yesterday was Halloween and I was talking to one of my clients with 10 year old twin daughters and she's she had come to me for her eating disorder before she had children. And I said, how did Halloween go for the kids? And she said, oh, they were so excited with their costumes and walking around. And then they came home and they, you know, sorted out all of their candy and traded. And, <laughs> and she said, I found a couple of, you know, wrappers in their bags. And that was it. They're so, candy is just like any other food for them. And they can have it whenever they want it. So it didn't become a free-for-all, which... I know that in so many homes, there's so much restriction and now you can have three pieces today and now you can't have any until tomorrow and now we have to throw it out. And the eating disorders ahead of us from the restrictive parenting is very scary. It is very scary. Yeah. I think it's it's really fascinating to see that distinction in kids because kids are born as intuitive eaters. You know, all babies are are intuitive eaters. Yes, they are. We get sort of conditioned out of it or not. You know, we can, as parents, people can foster and help flourish that sort of innate quality. And similarly, you know, sometimes the the disordered, restrictive mindset around food can set kids up for being out of touch. 
Well, not only being out of touch, but what's so interesting, and I think I will say from my own psychological understanding of my work and this work, is that really a healthy human being is programmed to protect his or her autonomy. I mean, if you look at little kids when they're two years old, around two, maybe before, so they start, their favorite word is no. They start to establish, you know, their own boundaries when they start to realize that they're separate <laughs> beings from their, from their parents. And, you know, throughout their, their childhood, been a peaking again in adolescence, they're saying, no, don't tell me what to do. And when I think about this whole concept of raising kids and telling them what to do with their eating and restricting them, what's happening is, is you're getting a food fight. You're getting a rebellion back one way or the other. Either they stop eating very much and then parents are really worried because they're not eating enough or they start rebelling by eating way more than their bodies need. And so much of that is that natural tendency to protect their own autonomy and to not be told what to do. So that's the key, I think, to so much of this work is the autonomy piece. That's kind of my baby. <laughs> ah, that's such a great point. Yeah. How do you sort of foster and cultivate that in kids? Like, What would you recommend parents do for that? Well, there is a chapter in the third edition of Intuitive Eating on raising kids and teens as intuitive eaters. And I believe that, you know, in the early, the first six months, kids are either getting breast milk or bottled milk, but they're just basically getting milk and they're telling you when they're hungry, they cry. And when they get fed and they're, they've had enough, they turn their heads and they won't take any more in. Then when solid food is introduced, I suggest introducing a variety of different tastes. And at that point in time, certainly giving them a whole slew of, you know, the nutritious foods that their taste buds get to appreciate different vegetables and proteins and grains and all of that early on, because they really don't have any awareness of others eating that early on. And then as time goes on, when they do become more aware, when they, they go to birthday parties, to put no restrictions on the cake or the, one of my clients was telling me that there was a birthday party and she was so horrified to see that one parent was saying, no, you can't have the donut because you had the pizza or, you know, whatever it was, the specifics of it. And really to, to engender in that child a sense of trust by the parents trusting the child. You know, I think Eric Erickson in his eight stages of man, which I would hope at this point, if it were renamed, it would be human. But the, the very first stage is trust. And that trust is developed through, I mean, what's the only thing that little kids do? They eat. I mean, they sleep and they poop and pee and all that. But but they basically their main action in life is is eating. And so if that infant is giving out a signal of hunger and that signal is responded to by the caregiver, parent, whomever is around, that child starts to not only trust the person who's taking care of the child that, you know, this child will get his or her hunger needs met, but also start to trust his or her own hunger needs. It's kind of, it goes back and forth. Oh, I'm being responded to. I'm, I'm giving out this call for food and it's given to me. Oh, so what I feel inside is trustworthy and the person who's taking care of me is trustworthy. So that's a, a trust developmental stage that that is primary to all the rest of the developmental stages. So when the child gets to be a toddler, letting that child know that you trust the child to get everything that he or she needs. Of course, the parent's job is to have food available of all you know varieties of nutritious food that will help the children grow and, and heal their wounds and all of that. And also have some of the other, what I call play food, which by the way, came from my 16 year old. Well, my son is 45 now, but when he was 16, he said to me one day, hey, mom, what happens to people who don't eat as healthy as you eat? I got kind of on my pedestal of, oh, well, they have more of this disease or that disease. And then he, he said to me, he pointed his finger at me and he said, yeah, but I see you eating French fries or candy or whatever it is. And I said, right, because, you know, I eat plenty of nutritious food, but then I have to have some play food. And that's where that word came from. And I, and I feel that we need to play in life. We can't work all the time. We ha need to have time to play. And with our food, we need to have this balance of food that's going to nourish us and food that's just for fun. And so I think by bringing up a child to know that his or her instincts are right on because you're not telling them what to do. You're just providing them the foundation of tasting all these different foods and then not restricting them on the play food. It all works out. And 
uh, some of the kids I've worked with are now in college, beyond college. They were babies, you know, early years ago, and they just maintain their intuitive eating trust throughout their life, throughout their childhood, and into their adulthood. I love that. And it's true that when you have that trust and that foundation, really any food that appears in your environment can be negotiated or navigated in a balanced way. It doesn't, it's not going to have that same push pull forbidden fruit sort of appeal that it does for people who've been restricted. No, absolutely not. I remember on my birthday this year, I happened to have two cakes in my refrigerator and I thought, I want cake for breakfast. (laughs) So I cut a piece of the lemon cake and I cut a piece of the chocolate cake. But I also knew I had an hour's drive. I had to go somewhere afterwards. And I thought, my blood sugar is not going to stay (laughs) if I only have this. So I got a banana out and put peanut butter on it and had a glass of milk and ate one of the pieces of cake. And the other one wasn't very good. So I threw that one out. And there was balance there because there was no like cake for breakfast. You know, it's like whatever I want. And it happened to be delicious lemon cake that was fresh in my refrigerator. I love that. It does come out balanced. Yeah. And it's true. Like you can balance things out by adding. It's not about subtracting or restricting. It's about like, oh, well, this isn't going to sustain me on its own. So let me give myself something that's also going to provide some nourishment and staying power and energy. So that's where that gentle nutrition comes in and that understanding that we want to feel good. And yes, I want food to taste good and I also want to feel good. And I'm not going to feel very well if I don't have some protein, if I don't have some fiber, something that's going to carry me for a few hours until I can get something else. And I always carry nuts with me and things like that just in (laughs) case I get hungry. Yeah, having snacks around is such a good self-care move, I think. Oh, it's imperative because you never know when you're going to get stuck somewhere. I was I was flying to Nevada, to Reno, to do a talk at an eating disorder treatment program. And I got to the airport in the morning and was told that my flight was four hours delayed. Now, it's only an hour flight from L.A. to Reno. And four hours. And I said, oh, why? Well, it's coming out of Chicago, delayed for weather. And I said, well, has it left Chicago? And they went, no. And I just for a moment stood there and I thought, this flight could end up canceled and I'm not going to get there. I have to give my talk tomorrow morning at nine. So I said, put me on any flight. Well, long story short, I was flying for seven hours that day through Seattle and Denver to get to Reno and never in any one of the transitions was there time to go get food. So fortunately, I had a bunch of nuts, bags of nuts, and I had bars with me. And I mean, I was sick of them by the end of the day and was grateful for the dinner I got that night, the professional dinner. But oh my goodness, people will fly without any food. And of course, today you can't get much of anything on an airplane. So you must take food with you. Yeah, such a good tip. That's always been my experience with recently the only place that I'll ever end up without food is often an airplane because I'll buy food thinking like, oh, when we get back, I'll be ready for whatever meal. And so I'm going to have a meal and a snack with me on the plane. And that should be enough, especially because I my family's in California. So I fly back and forth from New York a lot. That's a six hour flight. And then that gets delayed. You know, I have learned my lesson because I was flying back from the binge eating disorder conference on Sunday. And I, we got delayed by, it ended up being like a 12 hour travel day and I hadn't packed enough snacks. Unfortunately, they had some snacks for sale on the plane and I made it work, but it was like, oh my God, I'm out of food. I'm out of water. Like <laughs> this never no, happens. It's scary. You know? It I is mean, it's really terrifying because you go into such a physical deprivation and then mentally feeling deprived and scared. It's, it's not a good place to be. So and you were lucky that your flight had food to sell because there are some flights where they don't have anything. They just have coffee or water. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it makes me, I mean, I think, you know, that always frustrates me and makes me sort of low energy and hangry, but it also gives me a sense of gratitude for how I'm able to take care of myself now and how, like, if that's the only experience of deprivation I'm having these days, that's pretty good. You know, I'm, I'm doing okay. Absolutely. And it's all about intention actually, as far as I'm concerned, it's, there are going to be mistakes, you're going to forget to bring food, or you're going to eat more than you think you need. And because it's so delicious, and you get too full. But if your intention is to be intuitive, if your intention is to have self care, then that's 
what's important. An eating disorder is when your intention is not to take care of yourself and not to have the food available. Right. Intention is important, really important. And yeah, it's so not black and white. Intuitive eating is about intention and doing the best you can. And if it's, you know, if you have those moments where it's like, oops, I didn't bring food or oops, I ate a little too fast and now I'm really full. Like that's okay. You're not, you didn't break your diet. You know, it's not that black and white thing that diets have where it's like, oh, you're off the rails. And, and and one of the things that I like to talk about and show my clients, and in fact, the diagram is going to be in the new workbook, I call it the spiral of healing. And it's a, it really just looks like a spring going upwards. And I say that the momentum is always upward and onward. There are going to be moments in this healing process when you need to go back to some previous behaviors rather than looking at them as setbacks or you screwed up the black and white. It's really your opportunity to learn just taking it from a neutral place and saying, oh, okay, maybe I got too hungry or maybe I was having an emotional day and I wasn't taking care of myself in terms of getting some help for my emotions. And really to see it uh, coming, I I like to say, come from a place of curiosity, not judgment. Oh, let me be curious about it and and move right back into the intention of eating intuitively and, and taking care of yourself. Yeah, that's such a beautiful way to frame it. Because it's really not, you're not making a grave error anytime you no. have these mistakes. No, I, I tell my clients, you can, there is no failure in this office. Everything that you're doing is your opportunity for learning and changing and knowing yourself better. You're not ever going to do anything wrong because there's no right. It's more about just moving forward and shifting, your, challenging your old thoughts and moving forward and taking care of yourself emotionally so you build your emotional muscle. And But there's no bad. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right, exactly. Yeah, so I mean, in your personal experience, how did you start to learn that or embody that? For myself? Well, I think having come from a, as I said earlier, a very emotionally abusive father and having a perfectionistic way of life, trying to always do the very best so that I wouldn't get criticized or... I was miserable all the time, and I think through through therapy and understanding that, I came to understand that my drive for perfection was really making me unhappy. So to let go of that, to do the best I could do, which is all I can do, is the best I can do, and sometimes things are going to work out better, and sometimes they're not going to be as you know as you had hoped but to stop beating myself up if i if i screw up because it's not it's just it is i'm human you know we're all human and and i was able to do that with my son when he was very young i remember he'd come home from kindergarten with his handwriting and he wouldn't like it and he would have to practice it and he'd crumble it all up and throw it in the trash he probably inherited a bit of my perfectionist genes there and i would say oh honey, it's, it's fine. You know, it doesn't need to be perfect, but, but I'm sure he also saw me some of the time still at that point, this is over 40 years ago, still in that perfectionist mode, but I've really worked hard on that for many, many years to let go of it. And, and it helps me as I grow as a person, as I grow, I'm able to be better for my clients and be able to teach them my wisdom. On my website, I have something called words of wisdom, years and years of of ways I've changed that I think have helped me live life and make me a happier person. Mm, I love that. It's also really nice to hear that it's an ongoing process for you too, you know, that we're always works in progress to some degree. We're never finished, even though you have this amazing career and you've written multiple books and Mm -hmm. like, you know, you're still working on it too. Well, there's this word, I don't know if everybody knows the word, it's gerund. It's a piece of grammar, which means I-N-G, you're doing, you're being, you're There's always a process going on, and that's kind of a basis for my philosophy of life is that we're always progressing, moving forward. We're not really ever really finished. So I agree with you. It's it's, it's always a process, and, and it just makes you happier when you stop being so hard on yourself. Although I will tell you, I was so frustrated. I lost my driver's license a week ago, and I went to the DMV, and I don't know, it's probably not. The country doesn't know this, but our DMV was down for about three days with computer problems. And I sat there for three and a half hours and I kept thinking, oh my goodness, why did I lose my driver's license? But I got out of it pretty quickly. I used the time to read, which I rarely, you know, have that kind of span of time to sit and read. Yeah. So you got out of the critical mindset. Well, I I had to shift myself. It was actually quite interesting. At first it was, oh my God, I can't believe it. And now, you know, the 
by the way, I had to go back again at the end of the week because I sat three and a half hours and had to go to work and didn't didn't fix it. But I, I shifted it to, okay, this is an opportunity. Huh, okay, it happened. Well, the past is past. Let me just take this time. And I fortunately had had some forethought and brought some books and newspapers and things. And I sat there and I read, which it ended up being kind of nice. Yeah, totally. Giving yourself that space away from technology, away from work, just to read. It's nice. I basically have a love-hate relationship with technology. I mean, I, I, I type my master's thesis on a typewriter with a whiteout. So I do, <laughs> I do appreciate the computer, although one of my computers has just been driving me crazy for a month. But I do really think the technology in certain ways in the social media is ruining people in so many ways. I think it's really there's an obsession with it and an addiction to it and a way of comparing oneself you know most people post their best days their the days that they feel the best or some people even put pictures of themselves when they think they look the most beautiful or quote unquote the thinnest and or they show their two beautiful children when you know others are having trouble getting pregnant and it's i think it's really very hard for people to look at especially you know at facebook and and compare themselves so i do understand the advantages of it too though yeah, it is such a tough balance because like, I mean, I use it a lot for work and for disseminating my podcast and my writing and stuff. And, you know, I think there is a great movement of body positivity in mm -hmm. social media and like, you know, intuitive eating and health at every size messages are getting out there in ways that they probably wouldn't before technology connected us so much. But then also the flip side. Right. If some, someone can be directed to that and, but it's hard because the other things as well and it reinforces some of the old thinking but it's all about balance I and mean, that's one of my key words in life is balance and yes to appreciate what it can do for you but also not get so caught up in it and it's hard I mean I get hundreds of emails every day and I'm very committed to answering people's letters and things and and it takes up a lot of time so it's the love-hate relationship as I said oh I feel you on that I want to be able to connect with people and stay in touch, but it also just, I'm not on top of my email at all. So it's, it's overwhelming. Sort of it's really hard to go away, you know, on vacation for a week or two. Oh, and yeah. if you don't check it, you come home, you come back and you have to spend three days going through it. So it's hard. I know. Yes. It's a real challenge. But I think, yeah, if you can be sort of intentional about it. And I always say like for people who are, especially in the early stages of intuitive eating or eating disorder recovery, like to try to be really mindful of what you see in your social media or like email lists that you're subscribed to or anything like that, that is triggering, like just be mindful of what feelings are coming up when you're seeing these posts. And if something is triggering to you, even if it's like your sister posting on Facebook, mm -hmm. you have the right to unfollow. Like you don't, That's right. they, they won't even know actually, if you say like mute this person in your newsfeed, you know, they won't know. So you don't have to defriend them. You just don't follow them, right? Right, right, exactly. So that they're triggering stuff about whatever diet or something doesn't pop up in front of you all the time. That's right. You know, when I was, as I said, when I was growing up, when I was in high school, we didn't have social media. So we weren't flooded with the kinds of things that people are being flooded with today. Yeah, it's it's tough. I didn't get it until my early 20s. Like I was in school in the 90s. So, you know, I graduated high school without, we like had just gotten our first PC, you know, I just sent uh -huh. my first emails when I graduated high school. And like now to think about, I feel so blessed too, to have not had social media during that like angsty, awkward phase when things yeah. were so painful already, you know, like the social dynamics of school were tough enough without having to add this extra layer of social media connection on top of it. Right, right. So Try to be as balanced as possible. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Moral of the story. But yeah, so speaking of, you know, all of your great work and stuff, tell us a little bit more about the Intuitive Eating Workbook. Evelyn spoke about it a bit on her podcast, but I'm okay. curious, you know, to hear your perspective. It is so exciting. I will say that for so many years, we have gotten requests for a workbook from other professionals, you know, come on, give us some, <laughs> give some more. We've got the theory there in the book, but give us some exercises. And we finally were able to get this out. And we have so many wonderful exercises in it. They're thought provoking, helping people get more attuned with themselves, helping people stay present, really addressing some things that weren't addressed in the original book. And it's, I know it's going to be a big help to my own practice. I think it's going to be a help for other people who are working with people with eating disorders and intuitive eating to be able to send them out 
to do an exercise, to do some homework, bring it back in and be able to talk about it versus what so many people are on these apps on their phones where they're keeping track of their calories or they're keeping track of their food and they're, and it's really detrimental to them. So getting them away from that and really being able to do some true soul searching and mind searching and emotion searching to move forward. So it was interesting when we began writing the book, we thought of it, and I don't know if Evelyn told you this, but we thought of it as an adjunct to the reading book. And very soon we got an email from the publisher who said, we want this to be a standalone book. We don't want people to feel that they've had to have read intuitive eating before they get this book. So we really got the task of having to explain intuitive eating in another way along with the exercises. So it's really a very new book. It's very, I mean, it's a new book, but it's it's also not repetitive of the other book. It's, it's I don't know, more explorative. It's really interesting. You'll love it. <laughs> I'm so excited to read it and to use it, you know, and work with it with my clients and participants in my course and stuff, because yeah, the exercises I think can, and I had, you know, I did the certification with uh-huh. Evelyn. So I had the, I had the worksheets that she gave out in that. And I feel like that's been super helpful for my clients to have a little bit of groundedness or something to hold on to as they're going through this process. Because I think intuitive eating like is about getting you to a place where you can trust your body and just really let go into that trust. But I think it's so scary to let go when you've been so rooted in the diet mentality, it feels like just jumping off a cliff, you know? So I think these sort of worksheets and exercises can be a little bit of structure to like help you in that letting go process. You know, I think it'll be helpful. And I think there's one thing I'd been meaning to say in this whole hour, but I haven't said it. And I think the way into intuitive eating for anyone who's trying to trust the waters of it is to think about satisfaction in eating. To me, it is the driving force of intuitive eating. If you can find satisfaction in your meal, you're going to more naturally eat when you're moderately hungry instead of ravenous or already full. You're going to want to eat in a calm emotional environment. You're going to want to have made peace with food so that you don't have residual negative thoughts about what you're eating and then challenging all the food police thoughts and all of that. To me, it helps people get less scared about it if they think, oh, I'm really mostly thinking about how can I create an environment and meals that are going to be enjoyable to me and satisfying. So I just wanted to throw that in there also because you're talking about people being afraid of, you know, afraid of it. And it's kind of a gentle way into it. Yeah, that's a great tip. I really like that because I I think sometimes like thinking about your hunger and fullness in detail can feel scary to people when they've been sort of out of touch with those cues for a long time or, you know, challenging the food police is like, whoa, you know, that's... And we also want to make sure that people are not taking the principles of intuitive eating and turning them into a new diet yes. and feeling that we have to do them perfectly, you know. So let me get to exactly a f- on the scale before <laughs> I eat or whatever it is. I worry about that sometimes that people think they have to do this and perfectly and it's not about that. And in fact, I don't even teach the principles in any order. It's where the person's coming from, starting with satisfaction and moving on to wherever the person needs to address in terms of learning to, you know, ultimately to trust the body and to feel free. Mm, That's great to hear. Yeah, because we all have our little roadblocks with it. It's like certain principles might be harder for some people than others and there's Mm -hmm. sort of a different way into it. But satisfaction is such a good place to start. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad you like that because I love it. (laughs) (laughs) That's fabulous. Well, tell us where people can find you and, you know, your website, your other books and any other contacts. So my website is elisresh.com and my name is on the book for the spelling of it. And there's, of course, there's the intuitive eating, the three editions, but I would say to anybody, don't read the first two, only go (laughs) to the third edition, because I think there's still some of the second edition on Amazon, because we just really, in doing the third edition, it was really a big shift in focus and total revision of the book. And then there's an audio book that came out in 2009 from Sounds True, which is not a reading of the book. It's more of a discussion between Evelyn and me. And there's some guided practices in that audio book. So it's a, it's a really a, a very helpful book. And then I am in my office in Beverly Hills, California. My phone number is on my website. And I'm know that you actually wanted on the podcast. Oh yeah, I'll definitely link to all of this in the show notes too so people can find you. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that's great. And then the new book will be the, April 1st is the release date, but I think the books will be 
around in March. They're on presale on Amazon right now, although I will say that we are in discussion with the publisher about the color of the book. We we love the design. We don't like the color. <laughs> yes, Evelyn mentioned that too. It's yeah. a, the cover color might be changing, that there's like yeah. kind of a, a brown tan right now. Yeah, yeah. it doesn't appeal to either of us or any of the people we've shown it to. So mm. publishers seem to love it. So we don't we haven't gotten the final word on that yet. And you wouldn't believe it, but authors don't get a lot of say on a number of things. In fact, the, the book has been translated into Russian, Lithuanian, Czechoslovakian, German, and we had no say in it. And the cover on the Russian book is horrifying. It's a picture of a torso of a very thin woman holding an apple. So, you know, publishers go off and do things without their authors. <laughs> yeah, I know. It seems like in a really big way in the book publishing world, I'm in the, you know, magazine and online journalism space and that already it's like headlines and page titles and stuff can be very much antithetical to what you want because of, you know, SEO, but with books, it can be like radically different cover than what's actually inside the book. Exactly, exactly. Ugh, yeah. Well, but I'm excited about the book and I'm going to put the pre-sale link in the show notes also so people oh, can pre-order it and just have it Wonderful. right away when it comes out. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been so great oh, talking with you. It was great talking to you too, Christy. Thank you for the opportunity. So that's our show. Thanks again so much to our guests for being here and to you guys for listening. And we'll be back again next week with another brand new episode. Meanwhile, I'd love to stay in touch. And the best way to do that is via email. So you can go to christyharrison.com slash email to sign up for my VIP list. I'll send you info about new episodes of the podcast as they drop, as well as exclusive sneak previews of new episodes, exclusive giveaways and other special deals on the products and services I offer, special tips on how to make peace with food and learn to trust your body, and a whole lot more. Sign up at christyharrison.com slash email. You can also subscribe via iTunes and leave us a nice rating and review, which is a great way to get the word out about the podcast and help other people find these important messages. Just go to iTunes from your computer or your podcast app, type in Food Psych to the search bar, click on the result that comes up under podcasts, and then click on ratings and reviews, and you can leave a rating and review right there. And I really appreciate all the five-star reviews and wonderful ratings that we've gotten because it's helped us climb really high right now in the rankings. So we're currently in the top 50 of all health podcasts, and that's really cool because we're competing against some of the diet mentality, sort of traditional weight management and body shaming types of messages that I'm trying to fight with this podcast. So we've really started to beat out a lot of the diety voices, and I'd love to continue climbing higher in the rankings to get this message out even further. So please leave us a nice rating and review. It's so very much appreciated. And thanks to everyone who's left reviews so far. The music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL, and the track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license. Thanks so much for listening, and until next time, stay psyched. Stupid or scared, no work in the kitchen now. Who put you there in that perfect?